We're turning in God's word to Genesis chapter 42. We're going through the life of Joseph. And now we're coming to the part in the study where for a little bit we depart from Joseph and it's more looking at the brethren who will God is working in their life because they will soon meet Joseph. And we will see as we go through this how the Lord intervenes in their life for that meeting. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 42, verse 1 to 8. And we're thinking, last week we thought about the conscience seared. And so today, we're and the next number of weeks, we'll be looking at the conscience stared. And it'll be stared, today we'll look at, by providence and by people. How God stares our conscience, how God awakens the conscience. And so uh, we'll look at two thoughts today. Genesis 42, verse 1 through verse 8. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do ye look one upon another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither, and buy for us from thence, that we may live and not die. And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt, but Benjamin Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, Lest peradventure mischief befall him. And the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And Joseph was governor over the land, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him, with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him not, or they knew not him. Amen. We know the Lord. We'll add his blessing to the reading of his word. With God's word open, we'll just ask the Lord uh, for his help uh, just now at this time. Father in heaven, we're so glad for thy presence, for thy help this day. We thank thee for the lessons that we've learned in the life of Joseph, and also for the lessons that we've been drawn to the Savior, who he is, how he works. And Father, we pray even this day again, that as we come like Mary to sit at the Savior's feet, that we will hear his word and be blessed. Lord, challenge us today, we ask of thee, for the Saviour's sake. Amen. <clears throat> the account in Genesis chapter 42 uh, takes place some 20 to 21 years from Genesis chapter 37. We looked at that in great detail uh, last Lord's Day. Uh, in those years, ten of Joseph's brothers have lived in sin deceiving themselves and deceiving others. In Genesis chapter 37, instead of killing Joseph as they planned, they ended up selling Joseph as a slave into Egypt. But when returning home, they created a false impression of Joseph's absence, causing their father to conclude that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. And though Jacob uh, didn't, uh, say anything at that particular stage because he was overtaken by uh, great heartbreak. Yet, as we will soon discover, he did 
have his suspicions. But for now, the brothers conclude, since no one else knew what took place on that day, then they were in the clear. This matter would never be heard of or spoken of again. They began to justify their actions. They made every attempt to put the events of that day out of their mind by searing their conscience. They thought they had got away with sin. They thought they could live the rest of their lives and this sin would never trouble them again. Now, the conscience is God's witness in the soul, testifying of right and wrong. We looked at this again in great detail uh, last week. When you do right, your conscience is at rest. But when you are about to do wrong, or you are doing wrong, then your conscience sounds out that alarm, knowing that you are in a wrong place. What you're about to do is wrong. There's no peace, there's guilt, there's fear. And instead of listening, instead of obeying, instead of removing from yourself from that situation, what we do is then we silence or we sear or we harden the conscience by ignoring the warning and we build resistance. To sear the conscience then means to harden oneself against the warning. It is to deflect the mind on something else. It's to start to create a lie and live that lie, believe that lie, and then hope you've got away from it. You put a barrier up and it becomes a way of life until one day the Lord stares the conscience. The Lord awakens. The Lord exposes that secret and unforgiven sin, giving unrest, the feeling of guilt and shame. It comes upon you like a flood. And the only way to have rest is to receive pardon from the one who gave the conscience because God is the one who is able to give rest to the conscience that he gave. There's cleansing by the precious blood. And so this is the point we've got in the life of Joseph. His brothers seared their conscience. They thought they had gotten away with sin. They ignored, they excused everything they did that day to Joseph. But now 20 years later, or around 21, they're now convicted of that. They're challenged about that. And it all floods back the guilt, the shame. And they remember every single thing that they did to Joseph. And as we will discover in later verses, it caused them to cry out, We are guilty concerning our brother. For the first time in all those years, they admitted what they had done was guilty concerning Joseph. So today we want to look at the conscience uh, stirred. Notice the conscience was stirred uh, by providence. Two simple thoughts we will look at this today. First of all, the conscience is stirred by providence. This whole scene, God orders and arranges every detail. And God uses people. He will use places. He will use his providence. All these things we will look at in the next number of weeks uh, to bring these men to the point where they have to cry out, we are guilty concerning our brother. God works in his creation to permit situations to, 
uh, to fulfill, to work all things according to the counsel of his own will. How did God bring them to Egypt? How did God fulfill his word in causing them to bow down to Joseph? He sent a famine. And all that was under the sovereign control of God. Genesis 41, 54. Dearth was in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. Egypt is the only place where people could go to for bread. And unknown to the brothers, and obviously to Jacob, but certainly to the brothers, they don't know that Joseph is alive, and he is the only one authorized to give that bread. The one they've refused, rejected, mocked, betrayed, and sold. Again, a wonderful type of Christ is the one who is able to offer them life in a time of death. And while all this is taking place, and the famine and people are traveling back and forth from Egypt with bread, Jacob and his sons are unaware of this situation. And Jacob says to his sons, Why do you look one upon another? You're just sitting around looking and staring. Go down to Egypt. There is bread. There's corn in Egypt. Why look ye one another? And as soon as the brothers heard the name Egypt, their conscience was alerted. Their conscience began to stir within them because now they must go down to Egypt, but they're hesitant. Jacob says the first time, go down to Egypt. They don't budge, they don't move, they just look at each other. And then he says the second time, Behold, I have heard there's corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence that we may live and not die. Did you hear me? Did you understand what I just said? There's corn in Egypt. Get you down. This is a matter of life and death. And why did they hesitate going down to Egypt? Different people have different uh, conclusions. But again, I believe because 20 years previous in Genesis 37 and 28, the businessmen passing by them that they sold Joseph to were going into Egypt. And the point is this, the name and the place of Egypt brought back memories. You have to go down to Egypt. And so on that day when they persecuted Joseph, the last sight they had of Joseph was him being sold going down to Egypt. In fact, 21 years later, when they finally do meet Joseph, what does Joseph say? In Genesis chapter 45, verse 4, read it yourself, I haven't put it in. The Bible says, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. So there Joseph, as his brethren stand before him, they don't know him, but he knows them. And as he refuses himself, he then says, I am your brother whom ye sold into Egypt. And all the guilt, all the shame that they had carried for those 20 years had now flooded upon them. 
And so God providentially used the name Egypt to stare and alert the seared conscience of their wicked deeds, their deceptive ways, and their dealings, not just with their father in telling him lies, but also in persecuting uh, Joseph. Remember, this is also illustrated in the life of Jonah, how God uses places. Remember, Jonah was called to Nineveh. You remember that. God called Jonah to Nineveh to preach the gospel of saving grace. Nineveh was full of wicked sinners, and their sin came before a holy God. There was heathen worship, but Jonah refused the call of God, and he wanted to get away from Nineveh. He didn't want to go to Nineveh, and he wanted to get away from the presence of God. And so he went his own way. He entered into a ship going the other direction, going to Tarshish, thinking he would forget, uh, he would forget, let me turn this off here, he would forget, uh, Nineveh. He thought by going another direction, he would never hear of Nineveh again. He thought by going on that ship and sailing the other direction, Nineveh would be forgotten about, never to hear of, never to speak of. It's done and dusted. As if God said, go to Nineveh. I'm not going, okay, that's fine. And on that ship, God sent a storm. God moved in such a way providentially that the men themselves on that ship knew this is not your average storm. And so God used these men to intervene. And God used these men to challenge Jonah. And Jonah knew that he was not in the place where he ought to be. And he confessed his sin. And these men threw Jonah overboard. And in the sea, God sent a big fish, swallowed Jonah. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah on the dry land, which going to Nineveh. And so Jonah thought he could get away. But God intervened. Now we'll come back to that illustration a bit later on. But God used those on the boat to remind Jonah of Nineveh. You've departed from the will of God. And therefore, men and women, how often God providentially uses places, the name of places, a country, a city, a street, to stir up, to alert, to awaken the seared conscience of wrongdoing against others but above all against Christ. When a particular place is mentioned, maybe you don't want to go back there. You remember a particular day when something happened. You know the place where sin abounded. The works of the flesh were carried out at a certain location, a certain area. Now when people mention a street, a pub, a club, or some dance hall, or some location, you say, oh, I remember that place. I knew what happened there, or different things. And while you try to put it out of your mind, you try to forget that God has brought it to your attention for you to confess that sin to receive pardon, a certain activity, something that you were engaged in, involved in, whatever it may be, and God has brought it before you. You see, before there is forgiveness in the present, the past 
must be dealt with. That's why Peter, in always preaching the gospel, never let the people forget about the place of crucifixion. In Acts chapter 22, onward, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 22 onwards, the people tried to put Calvary out of their mind. They tried to put out of their mind the fact that they had crucified the Savior, the one who came to save them from their sin. They tried to live on as if he didn't exist. But then Peter came preaching the gospel. Ye yourselves also know ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know as surety that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified both Lord and Christ. Notice Peter, you're not getting away from it. Oh, you may try to live a life to forget it, but I'm telling you, you crucified the Son of God, the one who came to save sinners, the one who you mocked, you persecuted, the one who you passed by and shouted everything out against. You crucified him. And the people, 37, when they heard this, They were pricked in their heart. It hit them. We are guilty. And they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? And that's the whole point of the conscience being stirred. When you're stirred up of your wrongdoing, your sinful living, your secret sin, what are you to do? It's not to abandon church. It's not to feel so bad and say, I shall never go to church or read my Bible. No, it's to come before God and say, Lord, I've sinned all these years. My secret sin, my wicked pleasures, things that people didn't know about. But you've exposed it. And now I'm confessing it. Forgive me of my sin. Because whenever the man said to Peter, what shall we do? Peter didn't say, you ought to be ashamed of yourself and go away and think about it for the rest of your days. He said to them, repent, turn from your sin. And in turning from your sin, turn towards the Savior. And then they repented, they got saved, and then they got baptized. And so if you're saved, you ought to get baptized. Again, we'll have another baptismal service. So if you have been saved by the grace of God, you ought to be baptized. And so after then, verses 38 to 47, they received the word and they went on and went on with the Lord. The point is, God sent this famine. God provided supply in Egypt. And when the brothers were convicted about sin, that they long had put aside, it was now all brought before them. They seen how deceitful their heart was and desperately wicked. But when they would go to Joseph, they would find mercy with him. And so it is with you men and women. Whatever the sin may be, for how many years it's been hidden, there is forgiveness with the Lord. Hebrews 9 verse 4, He is able to purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the first part we've looked at, the conscience is stirred. By providence, God used the famine. The very fact that God permitted Joseph to go down to Egypt, all this, God used. 
So the conscience then was stirred then by people. So we'll look at that now. When Jacob told his sons, there is corn in Egypt, uh, get you down thither and buy for us. All the brothers expected to go. So they all uh, expect to go uh, for this. We learn in verse 3, Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy corn. But it's interesting that uh, 11 brothers are not going down. Remember, there's 12 brothers. Joseph is out of the picture at the minute. So there's 11 left, but only 10 go down. One now is missing. Who's that? Well, first four. That is Benjamin. And Benjamin will not go down to Egypt with his brothers because Jacob will not allow him. We learn uh, in uh, verse 4, Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob said not with his brethren, for he said, lest peradventure mischief befall him. In taking certain passages, it's clear that Jacob, though at this stage didn't have all the details, yet he suspected there was something that his sons had done, or they were involved in some way of Joseph not returning home. Now, we know the whole story. We can read from Genesis 37, and we can read and we know everything that has taken place. But obviously, Jacob did not know. The brothers returned, his sons returned with a coat dipped in blood of an animal that they had killed. And they said to their father in Genesis 37, verse 32, This we have found. Now, whether it be thy son's coat or no. So, Jacob sees this coat covered in blood. It's Joseph's coat. So then he's brought to the conclusion he's been killed in, by an animal. But the very fact that Jacob, or Joseph, or Jacob says about Benjamin not going down, lest mischief or evil or harm befall him, then he must have an idea that the brethren, his sons, have something to do. He just can't put his hand upon it. But they have to be involved at some point. Remember, in Genesis 37, verse 2, it was Joseph who brought back to his father an evil report concerning the other brethren. So Jacob has this picture at the start anyway. His sons really aren't trustworthy anyway. And now the very fact that they brought this coat back, Joseph's not there. He thinks suspicious that they must be involved in some way again and getting ahead of the story in verse 38 when the brothers return to their father and tell him the lord of egypt demands their youngest brother that is benjamin return to egypt with them in order to release simeon so they approved not spies jacob then responds again my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead And he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in which ye go, then ye shall bring down my grey hairs with sorrow to the grave. So clearly from Jacob's side, he doesn't want Benjamin to go to Egypt. He's protecting Benjamin. He doesn't want any harm. In other words, if Benjamin goes with you to Egypt, I have a funny feeling something dodgy is going to happen. Mischief, harm is going to befall him. And therefore, he's not going down. He's staying here. He said in chapter 42 to his sons, May ye have bereft of my children. 
Also, based on all that happened regarding Genesis 37 through 38, and Jacob's words in Genesis 49 about his sons, it confirms that among the brothers, some or most of them are not trustworthy men. They're not responsible men. So for that, Jacob says, Benjamin is not going with you, lest mischief, harm, something comes upon him. Also, another thought to keep in mind. Remember, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Remember, Jacob had children with both uh, Rachel and Leah. And we learn, the Bible tells us that he loved Rachel more than Leah. And together, Jacob and Rachel had two sons. And those two sons are both Joseph and Benjamin. Since in, since Joseph in Jacob's mind is dead, we know he's not, but in Jacob's mind, he's dead. The only connection, remembrance, if you want to say he has with Rachel, his departed wife, who he loved, is Benjamin. Rachel died, remember, giving birth to Benjamin. Therefore, to lose Benjamin cuts all ties, resemblance with Rachel. To lose Benjamin, and in his mind, Joseph's lost already, it sort of, in his mind, it's to bring that chapter of his life to a close. Rachel, who I loved, is dead. Joseph is dead. Now Benjamin, if he's gone, that whole circle of love to him will be gone. That tie will be gone with. And you can understand that from a certain point. Uh, maybe parents, uh, maybe a, a father dies or a, a mother dies, whatever that may be. And there's certain children left. Well, those children are the only tie left. Maybe that one of those children look like their mum or look like their, their father or sound like them. Different things. And there is that resemblance. There is that reminder. And so there is maybe that extra protection over the children because there is that remembrance. And so that is from Jacob's point of view. But can you imagine the point from Joseph's brethren? Jacob says, I've heard there's corn in Egypt. Get you down thither. And buy for us. But Benjamin is staying put. Lest mischief befall him. The ten brothers now begin to think about what's happened. They now go on their father's uh, suspicions. But what, what, what mischief? What, what, what mischief is he on about? Mischief will befall him. Does dad really think maybe we have something to do with uh, Jacob's or with uh, Joseph's dead uh, death, his absence. He won't send Benjamin with us. He doesn't trust us with Benjamin. And so God uses this whole situation because this situation, whenever the brethren are put in jail, whenever they're put in prison, this whole conversation comes up in prison. And they go over the whole thing in their mind. Everything they did, everything they said to Joseph. We saw the anguish of his sorrow. We heard him pleading. And we still cast him into the pit. We are guilty concerning our brother. So in this whole situation, God uses Jacob, uses Benjamin. And then later, as they stand before Joseph, who accuses them, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold. 
God uses all these people to confront these men, expose these men of their sin. And so see how together God uses providence. He uses situations, circumstances to expose sin. Something has, someone's been caught out. Something's been brought to light that never would have been any other way. And all of a sudden the sin has now been brought forward. Or God uses people. Someone may say something to someone or get on in a certain way. And sin is exposed again. Going back to Jonah in the ship. God using people. Whenever Jonah was in that ship, and again that storm came, and all the men in the ship began to panic, what did they do? Every one of them, the Bible says, they began to pray to their false gods. They all got down to their heathen worship. They were all panicking. They were all fearful. They were all praying to false idols. But they see Jonah, he's just sitting there, not praying to anybody. And so straight away, all focus changes to Jonah. There's something about this man. This man's not praying. And so they go to Jonah and they begin to inquire about him. Why are you not praying? And Jonah begins, well, I'm Jonah. I worship the God of the Hebrews. And he begins to tell the story. And they realize this man is running from God. This man is the reason why this storm has come. So God uses providence with the storm. And then God uses the people. Because what do they do? They get Jonah and they throw him overboard. It's not that Jonah volunteered and said, you know what, folks, I'll tell you what, to save you any hassle, I'm just going to jump in here. Jonah would have stayed on that boat and went through the storm and the ship could have been damaged and Jonah wouldn't have cared. But the men did. This man is living in sin. This man's disobeyed his God. And so they get him and they throw him into the water. Basically, it'd just be like someone saying to you, I heard what you did, I saw what you did, and it's sinful. And so that's what Jonah's point. And then God sends that fish, and um, as we said, spits him out at Nineveh. So God used these men. God uses people still today to convict and stir people in their sin. Again, he uses God's servants. He uses preachers as Preachers bring forth the word of God. Some people say, preacher, are you getting at me? Do you know something about my life? I certainly do not. You said something there. Have you been spying on me? Certainly have not. Have you been ringing round about me? Certainly have not. What's going on? And the whole point is this. God has revealed something in his word that it's finally just pricked your heart. And it's awakened something that you've hidden. Something that you don't want anybody to know. But God knows and God sees. And so God uses his word just to expose that. Whatever it may be. Something you're saying, something you've done. Whatever. Something hidden. And God brings it to light to show you. You need it confessed. Now let me close with this point. The greatest preacher in the world ever. I know Spurgeon is called the Prince of Preachers. But the greatest preacher the world has ever seen is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the perfect servant of God. And in John chapter 8, one morning, Christ was teaching in the temple in Jerusalem. And he was interrupted by hypocritical religious leaders of the day named scribes and Pharisees. And they brought, now there's a whole lot more in this uh, scene that I would love to bring to you. We will on another occasion on a separate message, but just 
for now we'll, we'll sum up this part. They brought to the Lord a woman who had been guilty of adultery. And by the law of Moses, she deserved to be stoned to death. Because breaking the law means death. The penalty of the law is death. But the religious leaders were so focused on this woman's sin and the punishment they felt she deserved that they had seared their own conscience, believing themselves to be without sin. They believed themselves to be better than this woman. They believed themselves deserving of heaven. They believed they had some sort of self-righteousness. And so this woman, she's a sinner. She's an adulterer. Lord, punish her. Give her what she deserves. Now, there's again a lot more uh, that we could bring out. They're all standing. They want to see what the Lord's going to do. But verse 7, say, just cutting it short, the Lord did something remarkable. He said to them all, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Whoever is without sin, you first cast the stone. But none of them could, because the Lord was showing them that you're all sinners. You're all wicked sinners. Verse 9. And when they heard it, when they heard what the Savior said, when the Lord had talked about their sin, oh yes, this woman, true, she's a sinner, she's guilty, but you yourself are just as guilty of sin. You yourself is just as vile and foolish. What about you? When they heard it, and here's the word, convicted by their own conscience. Their conscience is now stirred up. They're now awakened. They're alerted. All their secret sin, their sin that they've tried to hide out, all the wrong things that they do try to cover up. Well, the Lord has just exposed it in one word. So what did they do? They went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even on to the last. They just cleared off because they saw themselves as sinful, as guilty, as wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the point is, when challenged by Christ, their conscience that was seared, that was hardened, was now stirred. And they saw themselves for the first time just as equally as guilty at this woman, as this woman. Those secret sins, whatever it was that they had committed, maybe it could have been the same type of sin as this woman, but it didn't matter. Because they were still sinful. And due to their sin, they were still guilty of breaking the law. They should have been stoned as well. They should have been punished by the law. And so they refused Christ one day to give an account to God. While this woman was guilty and condemned by the law, the Lord had mercy upon her. The Lord pardoned her of her sin. Why? Because he is the one who came to fulfill the demands and the penalty of the law. Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And therefore he would seal on earth what was secured in heaven. Salvation for guilty sinners. He came to save sinners by paying the penalty of the law. By dying a death. Suffering for sin. And so the Lord stirs conscience, as we've looked today only, 
uh, by providence, by creating situations. It's no mistake how God brings something about. God is doing this to expose sin, hidden sin that no one ever knew about. People wonder, how did this ever come about? I thought it was done and dusted. God providentially moved to bring about the whole situation. And God uses people in that. Is there a Jonah in our midst? One backslidden, confronted and exposed. Is there a a religious hypocrite in our midst? Your self-righteousness has been confronted and exposed. Is there a condemned sinner in our midst? Guilt confronted and exposed. Are there Joseph's brothers in our midst? Years of hidden sin, living a lie, now confronted and exposed. If so, we learn there is a heavenly Joseph in our midst, the Lord Jesus Christ. In him are the storehouses of grace. And they are opened freely to pardon all and to cleanse all who will come to him. For the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. Our sin is exposed in order to have it cleansed, to have fellowship with the Lord. And so we've looked today at the conscience stirred by providence and by people. God willing, next time we'll look at two more thoughts how the conscience is stirred, what God used to confront these men, to bring them to the place where they had to cry out, we are guilty concerning our brother. What will God do in your life? What will God move in your life? What will God take in your life? Who will God use for you to finally say, I am guilty concerning sin against my Savior? Be saved, have sin cleansed, for his name's sake. Amen.